0: I see a number of new faces, at least new to me. And so, allow me just to orient you. We will be looking at Isaiah chapter 50. If you have your Bibles, you can find your way there. Some of you who have been around for a while will remember when I used to say, and I will say it again today, please be attentive to people around you. and help, if necessary, to navigate their way to Isaiah chapter 50. Go to Psalms, turn right, go a block or two. We have been um, in Isaiah, and every fall for the last several years, Isaiah has been where our sermons have been coming from. And today we have finally come up to Isaiah chapter 50 on this, the last day of our Isaiah series in this fall on Christ the King Sunday. It's always appropriate and always enjoyable to see how it is that the Lord in his sovereignty, how the Spirit in his sovereign orchestration of all of these things, brings together the church calendar together with the word of God. And that with all of our circumstances, circumstances that I may be aware of in your life, the circumstances that you are most certainly aware of in your life. Isn't it fascinating how well the Spirit knows us and how well the Spirit calibrates His word to speak to us? So as we come to Isaiah chapter 50, allow me to open us with a word of prayer. We are here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this place, at this time, to this point in this time, before this, your word that we see in our own language. Because you are the sovereign God who has been working through all time, the same yesterday, today, and forever, to make all things and indeed to make all things new. And so we pray that now by your spirit, we, your people, would hear again your voice, your word so that we may behold your glory. Spirit, come and work in the way that you are known to work through very weak, frail, and feeble instruments to display the mighty power of the living God in us as your people, for we pray it as your children. Amen. Isaiah chapter 50, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness. And make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. For he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? And obeys the voice of his servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with mighty torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. Good news to us, his people, even in 21st century, as you like to hear me say, even in little old Flintstone, Georgia. Well, today is November 20th. It is Christ the King Sunday. It is the day in which we celebrate the one toward which and for which and around which the entire Christian year and indeed the whole Christian life and indeed the entire year itself and life itself moves and revolves. It's a big day. Not by our culture's Accounting, of course, but by our accounting, it's a big day. It's Christ the King Sunday. This raises a question. Given our circumstances, given our conditions, conditions that I may or may not be aware of as your pastor, circumstances that I may or may not be aware of as your pastor, Given our fears, fears that I may or may not be aware of as your pastor, given our fretfulness regarding the circumstances of our own hearts and minds in which we find ourselves, circumstances of heart and mind that consume us as evidenced by bad days and sleepless nights, given the complexities of our finances and our homes, the demands made upon us by family and Friends and neighbors and co-workers and even strangers in this 21st century North America. And given the uncertainties of our local, national, and international circumstances, and given that in the face of all of this, we are on the eve of celebrating the king's first advent into our circumstances in eager, eager. Can I say it again? Eager anticipation of his second advent. Visibly with power and glory into the very heartbeat of our circumstances. Given all that we know about our world and our life in it. Would we recognize the king for whom we claim we are waiting Would we recognize our king should he make his appearance among us in our circumstances? Would we recognize our king should he make his appearance in our presence during this hour? Would we recognize the presence and power of God should he appear in our midst Are we so busy with our frantic and fretful activities to secure and defend ourselves from all manner of enemies, real and imagined, that we have little time or energy to see, to hear, to recognize our King should he appear before us in the person of his servant? To say nothing of actually having the energy, having heard to obey, having seen to follow. It is quite easy for us to presume, given the benefit of hindsight and the many years of church history and church church, history, uh, church, church teaching, about the person and work of Jesus, that of course we would recognize him. Dan, we're Presbyterian. We don't recognize anyone else. And yet, we should be very careful. For if the people of Israel who had seen mighty deliverances throughout their history, if the Pharisees and disciples who walked and talked with Jesus, if Saul of Tarsus, who'd excelled most of his contemporaries in biblical and theological knowledge, if these people repeatedly failed to recognize the presence of God among them in their very circumstances it is at least as possible, if not likely, that we may fail as well. This is the background to our opening verses in chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? It is for your iniquities that you were sold. It is for your transgressions that your mother was sent away. The covenant people of Israel found themselves in entirely unexpected circumstances. And as the people who were heirs to the promise, in their mind, it was an entirely unlikely scenario. For the entirety of Isaiah's ministry, they found themselves surrounded one day by this enemy, another day by that enemy. This was not supposed to be happening. We are God's chosen. And then, in the the scenario in which we imagine ourselves here in Isaiah chapter 50, they find themselves now in exile. What?! They watched Jerusalem crumble. They watched the treasures of the temple hauled away. They watched as families are torn apart and carried away into a distant and unknown land. And as Clay showed us last week, they, they accounted for all of this by accusing God of having forsaken them and forgotten them. And as Pastor Clay indicated, God's response is, "Wait, wait a minute. Do you have any idea who you're accusing? For it is impossible for me to forget. It is impossible for me to forsake. There must be another exclamation explanation." And here, they continue their accusations. The Lord has rejected us. He has divorced us. He has sent us away. He has sold us out. And thus says the Lord. If you're looking at your Bibles, many of your translations will have that in small caps because it's not just an office, but that's a name. It's the covenantal name. It's the name of the one whose glory is steadfast faithfulness and love and mercy and forgiveness. How can you even imagine that I have divorced you? That I have rejected you? Who has anything on me that they could force me to sell you to settle my debts? You have no idea who you're accusing. You have forgotten. I am the Lord. But let's not be too quick to cluck our tongues because they're Conclusions were quite reasonable. Those of you who have known me for a while know that I use the language of reasonable and understanding, understanding very advisedly and very self-consciously. Their conclusion was quite reasonable and quite understanding. After all, their enemies were real. They were not figments of their imagination like many of our enemies are. They were real. And their exile was real. The siege of Jerusalem had been real. Its collapse and destruction had been real. It sure looked like abandonment. It sure quacked like abandonment. It sure waddled like abandonment. It's entirely reasonable then to conclude that it was, in fact, abandonment. But we find in verse 2, the Lord saying, You you don't know. Because I've come. I have called. Verse 2, when I came, why was there no man? And when I called... Why was there no one to answer? I was there. Has my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? It's an idiom that we find throughout the Old Testament. The arm of the Lord or the hand of the Lord. And it speaks of the Lord's power and desire and ability to rescue his people. But, there's an, but there is an added element here in its use here. Because this is the same arm that reaches out to his people. I'm here. Daddy's here. Won't you come? Come to me. While with the other arm, he is fending off the enemies of his people. But there was no one to see. No one to hear. No one to respond. And he speaks tenderly to them. But I came. I was there. I did call. I did hold out my arm. I did say come home. The history of God's own mighty acts and fulfillment of his great promises. The fact that as they were taught in their hymns to worship a thousand years in the Lord's eyes is but as a day. So that the purposes of God and faithful fulfillment of his promises unfold according to a different timetable. And as a result, they were as a result of their circumstances, they were blinded to all of this. And their accusations failed to account for the strong arm of their tender God who had fought the gods of the Egyptians in order to pluck them from the depths of slavery and anonymity. In short, these people had given far too much Weight to their current condition and their present circumstances. And so they lost sight of and so failed to account for not only the coming of the Lord, but his steadfast, unchanging, continuing presence with them. Our passage here is divided into three movements verses 1 through 3, 4 through 9, and then 10 and 11. You might describe it as the movement of Israel's faithless blindness, followed by the servant's unexpected appearance and faithful obedience, and then a call for response. But notice this, each movement hangs upon the word of their covenant God. Thus says the Lord, the Lord has, given, has, has spoken to me. The Lord is giving me the tongue of those who are taught. He has spoken to him. He has spoken in his ear. And then, of course, the Lord who speaks. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord? This is the word of the Lord, the covenant making, the promise making and the promise keeping God. This is the one who is speaking. The very one that they are accusing of having forsaken and abandoned and sold them out is the one now who speaks to them. In fact, this covenant, which should be coming to mind by virtue of hearing the Lord speak, In fact, has built within it the very tools that the people of God would have needed to make sense of their circumstances. When we find ourselves in good circumstances and bad circumstances, we find ourselves asking, How did this happen? How did I end up here? I didn't expect to be here. I didn't want to be here. In Deuteronomy 28 lists out, and there's all kinds of things we can say about Deuteronomy 28, but it lists out all manner of covenant blessings and covenant curses. And there's various and sundry reasons and functions for that. But one of them was given by Moses on the eve before the people went into the land so that they might know this is how the Lord desires for you to flourish in the land. And if it doesn't happen that way, Go back to square one, as we were reminded just a few minutes ago. Commandments two through ten are really just variations on the first commandment. And so if we find ourselves wondering in these wonderful days, how did we come to flourish like this? As Israel, no doubt, found themselves asking. The answer would have been through right fellowship with God and living in our world and with one another according to his design. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It will go well with you in the land. If we find ourselves in dire circumstances, we say, how did we come to be in such circumstances? Deuteronomy twelve twenty-eight helps us to ask that question and answer it. By neglecting our God, overlooking him, ridiculing, and despising his ways and ultimately rejecting him. It is for your iniquities that you were sold. It is for your transgressions that your mother sent you away. This is the Old Testament version of what Paul says in Romans 1, 18 and following. You neglect God, you despise his wisdom, you reject his design, and it will lead you to disaster. Disaster. Standing in awe of God, worshiping God, loving God above all else, allowing your life to be shaped and prioritized and saturated by the love of God leads to the sort of flourishing life in this world for which we were designed. Not necessarily the one for which we want, but certainly the one for which we were designed and for which we hunger and thirst whether we know it or not. And that's why it is said, it is not because I have rejected you. It is not because I have sold you. But it's because of you have rejected me and you have sold me out. Yet, as Paul might say in Ephesians, but now, but yet, I have one among, who, one from among you who stands in stark contrast to your own arrogant, if ignorant, faithlessness. One who listens and obeys in humble faithfulness. One emerging from among you who hears and obeys and sees and follows. By this one I will do my work. Many of you know that Isaiah 50 is the third of four so called servant songs. There has been this one that has been on the horizon of God's plans for his people. And early on, we don't know if it's an individual or if it's a a group. But then in the latter two, what we begin to see is he begins to emerge from the misty mass of Israel. And we begin to see distinguishing features, how he acts and how he speaks. There is one who emerges from among the misty mass of the frightfully and fretfully faithless people of Israel, who actually hears the voice, who actually sees the Lord and follows. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught his language of discipleship. And brothers and sisters, he was not in a classroom This language of discipleship is whole life language. In the Hebrew mind, if you hear somebody, you do it. If you you fail to obey having heard the command, then in the Hebrew mind, you haven't heard. You haven't understood. And this one hears as as one who is taught. He, the Lord opens his ears and he's not rebellious. He doesn't turn back, but I go, I follow, I obey. You can hear Israel saying, what? We've been looking for you. We've been calling out for you. We've been crying out for help, waiting for you and listening for you to respond. When did we neglect you? When did we ignore you? When did we overlook you? When did we ridicule you? When did we reject you? Truly, I say to you, the servant might say rather anachronistically, insofar as you have neglected and overlooked and ridiculed and rejected the least, the lost and the lonely, you have indeed Neglected, overlooked, ridiculed, and rejected me. Because the servant's appearance in our life and in our circumstances takes on forms and habits that are most unexpected and, quite frankly, unwelcome. Notice what he says here. The Lord spoke, I heard, and I obeyed, so I... Gave my back to those who strike. My cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Are you kidding me? That's the glory of the reigning king? The servant's unlikely, unexpected, and unwelcome appearance when we think of the glory of our Father's great love, we think beauty and light and power. We don't think being whipped on our backs, having hairs pulled out of our beard, people spitting in our faces. We don't think suffering, sacrifice, and death. For the least, the lost, and the lonely. And Thus, when he comes... And when he calls, we regularly fail to recognize him, to respond to him. Surely, he wouldn't be calling me to do that. That cannot possibly be the word of the Lord. And so, we find ourselves neglecting, overlooking, dismissing, ridiculing, and rejecting the word. See, the servant appears in places and in times And in and among people that we do not expect. And so we are not inclined to see him or hear him or honor him or welcome him. And thus we have the account in Matthew 28 of the judgment day. Where the Lord will say to those on his right. Come in because because when when I was hungry you fed me. When I was thirsty you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they would say, what? When did we do that? Well, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And to those on his left, he will say, go away from me. Because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they will say, what? Had we known, we would have been there. We visit all of our friends. And he says, depart from me. For insofar as you did not do this to the least of these, you did not do it to me. D.A. Carson, commenting on the command of Jesus in Matthew chapter uh, 6, I believe, Matthew chapter 5, to love your enemies. Carson says, love your enemies big and small. And he writes this, when in this lecture's title I refer to enemies big and small, obviously I am not thinking of their physical dimensions, but of the scale of their enmity. Not all Christians face persecuting enemies, but all Christians face little enemies. We encounter people whose personalities we intensely dislike, a truly revolting relative, an employee, this is D.A. Carson, an employee or employer who specializes in insensitivity, rudeness, and general arrogance, a business competitor more unscrupulous, not to say more profitable, than you are. The teenager whose boorishness is exceeded only by his or her her own unkemptness. The elderly duffers who persist in making the same querulous demands whenever you are in a hurry. The teachers who are so intoxicated by their own learning that they forget they have been called to teach. The students so impressed by their own ability, so terrified by the shame of a low grade, that they whine and wheedle for an A they have not earned. People with whom you have differed on some point of principle who take all differences in a deeply personal way and who nurture bitterness for decades, stroking their own self-righteousness and offended egos as they go. Insecure little people who resent and tear down. And if, heaven forbid, you accidentally bump into such an enemy, the best defense D.A. Carson continues, is a spectacular English civility. For those of you who may not be aware of what a spectacular English civility may sound like, allow me to translate it for you. Bless your heart. (laughs) Coupled with a retreat as hasty as elementary decency permits, after all, Isn't niceness the cardinal virtue of the gospel? Of course, the matter is made more complicated and far more offensive. But the question is this, in the face of such relationships, how can I love? How can I care? Well, the servant tells us, I do this because the Lord God helps me. The reigning Yahweh helps me. Therefore, even though I've been spit at and disgraced, yet I am not disgraced. Therefore, I go with confidence and with determination, not because of my own strength, not because of the weakness of my enemies, but because of the glory and the strength and the power of the King who reigns. He is the one who vindicates us. He is the one who helps us. He is the one who justifies. How do we recognize and listen and respond in obedience in such unlikely and unexpected places? By recognizing that these are the times and these are the places and these are the people among whom The glory of God's great love is to be discovered, recognized, and practiced. We recognize the servant by knowing the love of the Father. Thus it is throughout the gospel accounts we see Jesus acting on the basis of who he knows the Father to be. In other words, the Gospels regularly root the faithfulness of Jesus in what he knew about the Father. Namely, his steadfast love by which he would be true to his word. It is the same thing to which we look. Indeed, we look to it with the benefit of the light of the cross. In which we see the love of the Father extending even through death. To life on the other side. So who among you fears the Lord? Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord? Who among you sees him? Who among you has heard him speaking? Who among you fears the Lord and obeys, therefore, the voice of his servant? If you find yourself walking in darkness where there is no light... Brothers and sisters, listen. Trust in the name and in the voice of the Lord. There is another way to respond. There is another way to respond, and that is to say, I am far too busy to stop and look and listen and be still and know that He is Lord. I have enemies at my door. I have to work hard. I have deadlines this week. I cannot take time to be still in the presence of the Lord with His people. I got things to do, places to go, things to accomplish, things to accumulate. I have torches to burn, by which to light my way through the darkness. Dan, you have no idea how dark it is. I have no time to listen to this. And there we are. Who among you fears the Lord? If you fear the Lord, then stop. Listen. Look. Be still. Trust. In the name of the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Because, brothers and sisters, the power of the king is the love of the servant. And the way of the king's love is the willing and joyful suffering and sacrifice of the servant. The way of the king's love is to honor those who have shown themselves to be dishonorable. The way of the king's love is to love the unlovables and deplorables. The way of the king's love is to receive and welcome into our circumstances, into our lives, the least, the lost, and the lonely, as we, the least, and the lost, and the lonely, have been welcomed ourselves. Have you ever wondered why does the scripture exhort us To love our neighbor? Well, because we're not naturally inclined to love our neighbor. Have you ever wondered why the scripture exhorts us to unity among Christian brothers? Because we're not naturally inclined to unity. We're naturally inclined, as self consumed and self serving as we naturally are, we are naturally inclined to look out for number one, to not care for our neighbor, for our Christian brothers. We're not naturally inclined to honor those in authority. We're not naturally inclined to love our enemy. For the appearance of the king and the power and the love of the king are so unlikely and so unexpected and quite frankly so unwelcome that we can't recognize should it come to us, call to us, and hold out its arms to us because we are so busy lighting our own torches, finding our own way through the darkness. But brothers and sisters, listen. Every week we pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth in these circumstances as it is in heaven. Can you hear him calling? Can you see him coming? Be still and know that he is the king who reigns by the power of his great and unchanging love. So, Father, we do pray that you would indeed grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray, Father, that you would train us in the ways of your power in the habits of your love, in our dealings one with another, husbands and wives, parents and children, bosses and workers, neighbors, strangers, even enemies, that you may train us to see and to hear and to participate in the presence of your servant who makes his dwelling among us. We pray it in his name, even the name of Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning one.